This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, Kevin Maurer. He is a journalist and author. We just did a podcast with the subject of his latest book, Damn Lucky. That is John Lucky Luckadoo, a pilot in World War II who flew the B-17 Flying Fortress. Just an incredible story. So this is his latest, but he's also written Hunting Che, and we got to know each other after he wrote No Easy Day and No Hero with my friend Mark Owen. So we get into a whole host of things on this podcast uh, to include what it was like to work with such an incredible person in John Lucky Luckadoo to tell this story. So now, without further ado, Kevin Maurer. Dude. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. If you made him up, I mean, if you made him, if you, if you were writing a, a, a World War II historical fiction novel and you named your character Lucky Luckadoo, you'd gone too far. But the guy's real. And, and what stuck me, stuck with me about this whole story is how so much of it circles back on it, on each other, right? So you meet Sully, like you said, you kind of knew where Sully was going, but to see that and then to be able to find his diary at the Chattanooga, they had digitized it at the University of Chattanooga and then to find the pictures in his archived, uh, in his RC, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, you know, uh, file. I mean, I don't know. The, the book is amazing and his story is amazing, not only in the, his ability to tell it, but in his, in the way that it all plays out, like it could not have orchestrated it better. I mean, that's incredible. It's so powerful. And, you know, some of these guys, like, like I was saying, my daughter and I went to Pearl Harbor and helped out the veterans over there, age 96 to 104, uh, wheelchairs in and out of the buses to the ceremonies, mm -hmm. to the, their hotel rooms, to their meals. And she got to be with them for that entire, entire week. And, and it was very common for these guys to have gone the last 50 years, 60 years without ever having had a conversation with their wife, with their children, their parents, even with people that they had maybe even served with that they crossed paths with again in life. They never talked about it. And then something happens. And with each, and it was, it was very common with each of these, and we had 64 veterans that we did that, uh, that we took over there. And it was very common that there was some sort of an event. They were asked to speak at a church group. Um, and it typically wasn't a family member that got them to, to open up. It was, it was something else. And, uh, and it was interesting to hear that again from Lucky that it was, he was asked to speak at an air symposium. I, you know, someone heard that he was in world war II and asked him to speak. And then all of a sudden he, relates this incredible story or maybe it just starts you know adding a little more to it over time as you remembers more and thinks back through it and gets more comfortable sharing but it was uh, it was very common when i when we sat down with those guys at all those meals and talked to them and uh that they didn't talk about it for so long after which is why i asked that that yeah. question yeah um, it's a good question it's interesting too and and when he talked about how often we talked but um going over these events over and over again you know i warned him before we started that this wasn't going to be easy and yeah. then I'm going to drag some things up because we're going to go, I'm not a historian. So I'm not after the, 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 what happened. And then when this happened and this happened, I'm, I'm interested in what it smelled like, what you were feeling, you know, were you scared? If you were scared, why? Like, let's go real deep. And so I, you know, he, we took a week off, I think, because he needed a second to process. I had dragged a lot of things, I think, 
and then to, to, to put that in perspective, I mean, we were all sort of dealing with COVID. Mm-hmm. So we were all, you know, we were in a weird time anyway. So um, I think that pressure cooker took its toll a little bit, but I, I just commend him for, for, for opening up to the level he did and to being that, you know, that honest and truthful and that, that, yeah. you know, vulnerable. And then I also think that um, his afterward pretty much seals the book, you know? Yeah. I just read it before we, before we uh, you know? came on here um, right there. I love how it starts. I love flying still do. You know, that's what I was, uh, I was asking him about that. Yeah. Um, but don't always love the memories that came with it, especially being shot at while at the controls of a B-17. Yeah. And, yeah. Incredible. You know, and he's a hundred years old. Uh, March 16th of this year, he turned a hundred. Yeah. Jeez. It's a hundred year old. Uh, I was there what, last year and I drove, he drove me around Dallas for two days. No kidding. Still, still drives. Still fine. Yep. He know. seems great. I mean, yeah. Oh, Incredible. Yeah. Oh, and I'm always yeah. interested in the stories these guys have after the war. Uh, I was interested in, in that when we were in Pearl Harbor, finding out what these guys did afterward. I mean, one of the guys who was a hundred and something, I think, and he, w- he came back and he uh, joined the forest service and he becomes a smoke jumper. And then he's like, like they're doing all this amazing things. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really interesting to talk to all those guys, the different paths that they, that they took after their time doing something so, so significant. I was shocked that they, they gave him that questionnaire. When he came, yeah, back. I was too, yeah. and I, re- I remember that. And and and, but I uh, that that's so. I also think that's a rare. You don't read a lot about World War II and the trauma and the after effects. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other part I really like that we we get a whole chapter in there about you know and 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 then remember the the woman who gives him the scarf. You know, you get some closure with her, and it's it's just a tragic story. But he he makes that point that when he left South Carolina, he's one person, and when he comes back after what he's been through, he's a different person, and that that person isn't compatible. Yeah. Um, di- different cats than from maybe you and, and Mark Owen and some of the other guys I've written about in that you guys are, these guys are just regular Joe, right? Yeah. Like that they're, they're ordinary guys in extraordinary situations and they rose to the occasion. I, I think, you know, and that's the, that's one of the big differences I take away from, from, from the, the, the different books I've written is that mm-hmm. he really is a citizen soldier in the purest form of it. Yep. Oh, exactly. Like we knew kind of what we we're getting into. A lot of us came in before September 11th, thinking that we'd be going on all these secret missions all over the world. And that wasn't really yeah. the case until after September 11th, when we started doing what we thought we were going to do when we, when we came in. Um, but I guess you're a little more prepared for it because you're thinking about it and you expect it. Um, uh, I, I guess rather than just being thrust into it as a citizen soldier. And now the weight of the world is really on your shoulders. Uh, I should have asked about that. You know, if they were aware that really the, uh, the fate of the free world is on their shoulders or if they didn't think about that, I should have asked that. Not, not any more than you guys did. Yeah. Because you know, as well as I do, you know, when, when, when it starts, when the mission starts, you're really there to do the best job you can do knowing that that by doing that, you're taking care of the guy to the left and the right. Yeah. No different. When you climb into that B-17, you know, he's the co-pilot. He's got nine other guys there that need him to be the best co-pilot he can be to get them all home. Yeah. They're not really weighing like if we lose, Hitler wins. Like that's that's you know they lose if we lose, I'm dead, yeah. right? So that that I think that's right. where it stops. Uh, but I also think that it, we you don't see this in modern warfare anymore, where we don't have a lot of missions anymore or a lot of units that are facing this, where they're climbing into that B-17, and it's not a matter of if they're going to make contact; it's just a matter of when. They're you know they didn't fly any missions where they didn't get shot at. Yeah. Very, and, very few. And if, and they knew those odds, 
you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. stepping in, they're hearing the, these yeah. odds and they're, and I'm sure, uh, what Axis Sally is letting them know those odds, yeah. reinforcing that. Um, I kind of wanted to get into a little more. Did you ask him like why, or if they were prohibited from listening to that station or, and they just did for the music or they were interested in what Axis Sally might have to say, uh, or was, it seems like there'd be some blanket order, like don't listen to like AM 560 or whatever it is, you know, right. uh, yeah, so, yeah. something Some like that. Off, I mean, off. I mean, there are bars in San Diego. They say, don't go here. Cause you get stabbed or whatever. You know, there's something like, don't go to Tijuana. You're not allowed. I think that's still probably in effect. It came into effect. I don't know, halfway through my time in the military, but it would seem yeah. like they say, it would say no playing this radio station or could she just, you know, in, change it up and get in on different frequencies so that these guys would hear it somehow eventually. I wonder. Uh, I never did that much of a deep dive in it. I suspect, though, that um, they just listened to it for the for the radio for the songs. Um, and I think she chimed in, you know, when she could. But you know, it's interesting. We we talked a lot about too about his fear. Um, there's a really great that quote from the Luftwaffe Ace, where he talks about you know when you're fighting twenty Russians or twenty Spitfires, it's kind of fun, it's exciting. But when you turn in on a, you know forty flying fortresses. You're all your sins flash in front of your eyes. Wow. This battlefield was the most treacherous battlefield of the war, by far. Well, and the numbers because yeah, everything's trying to kill you, right? Yeah. Everything. You can't Weather, <laughs> right? You can't breathe. You're. It's too cold to survive. So you touch anything without your gloves on. That your your hands sticking to it. You know, you get st- that that aircraft, which by by the time we're talking about it, is actually obsolete, right? Because by the time you get to the end of World War II, they got the B-29. That thing has fewer guns, can go farther, can carry more bombs. It's pressurized. I mean, this thing is like, you know, strapping to the, w- the wings with like, you know, 50 caliber machine guns. It, it is really archaic to some yeah. extent. Um, but that's the, that's the thing that struck with me, too, is just the horror of that battlefield in that, you know, <laughs> I asked him one time how many times they practice parachute jumping. Uh-huh. He said never. Zero. <laughs> it was gonna be the first time if they had to do it. Yeah. For one time. You're a one-time paratrooper. You just you just jump and and imagine that too, where they're jumping out of like, say, for example, they're jumping out of the bomb bay because their aircraft is on fire and they've got to get through the formation and the Germans and the flak and then land in a country that is utterly hostile. And you hope to God the, the Luftwaffe is there or the German soldiers are there to pick you up. Because if they're not, the, the citizens are gonna kill you. Wow. Because you just bombed their... Because you've been bombing them for every day. Wow. Wow. That is just wild. Man, what an experience. Uh, Mm. And you've written a lot. I mean, your work is so incredible. And I want to talk to you about that path that you you took to to get here. um, Because I find it so, so fascinating. Um, but, uh, but this in particular, I mean, damn lucky I've read, I've read all your stuff up to, to this point. Um, and obviously we have a, a mutual friend in, in Mark Owen and those, those two yeah. books that, uh, that you, you did, um, uh, documenting his story, but gosh, this generation right here, I mean, I just wish that more kids would read books like this, um, it's good, ah, because I think they'd appreciate everything they have a little bit more. Man, so wild. Gosh. And uh, it's interesting. So I read uh, Bomber Mafia, I think over the summer. Uh, I read it. I listened to it because Malcolm Gladwell does that thing where it's a little different than the, than the book uh, when he does yeah. the, the audio nowadays. It's more like uh, podcast-ish. And then interest, and then uh, listen to his podcast on that as well. Uh, and obviously, that doesn't include the human element 
you know, as much as, as this mm-hmm. does, but you learn about the Norton bomb site, you learn about the tactics and the evolving tactics of the bomber mafia and on all that stuff. So you get the historical perspective and, and then the impact of those tactics on uh, Germany and Japan. Um, but, uh, you know, this, so I think it's a good companion reads for people who have read the bomber mafia, read this. Like you have got to read this because it humanizes all of those things that you learn technically, um, by, uh, by, by listening or reading the bomber mafia. But, uh, I mean, you guys crushed it with this man. So path to get here. Like we met a couple years ago. I knew about you before then because of your work and then because of what you did with, uh, with Mark Owen. Um, but what was that, what was that path to, to writing your first, your first book? So I, uh, I was a military reporter at the Fayetteville Observer in North Carolina in Fayetteville. I guess out of Fort Bragg. And uh, I ran across a POW who fought in Korea. Uh, and he spent, I think, three years in a Chinese military okay. um, or Chinese uh, prison camp. And so I started writing that book just because I wanted to write a book. And I was interested in his story. And his story was so good. Um, and I, I ended up... That one just sort of fell by the wayside. I, just, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. Um, and I didn't really believe I could write a book. Um, and then I ran across a guy named Rusty Bradley. Uh, and because I, I was tipped off about a battle in 2006 where three spe- ODA special forces teams went up to this, to this mountain in uh, Afghanistan in Kandahar, Spirongar right there in Panjaway, and, uh, and took it from the Taliban after they, they assaulted it once and then had to go back. And then the next morning they assaulted it again and took it. And, uh, it was, it was in the time when every, there was all kinds of battle books coming out. Mm. And so I was able to sell that book and co-write it with Rusty. I, I wanted to write it on my, my own. Rusty wanted to write his own book. We, we kind of, we kind of came together smartly, uh, because he was there, he was the ground force commander. And so I was able to, to write that book. And once I, I kind of broke in there, um, I sort of started getting into these, these co-writing gigs, which I thought, you know, it was an interesting opportunity to help guys tell stories because yeah. I could see after doing it a few times, how much it helped. It was sort of cathartic in a way. Yeah. And I thought it gave a, a, it gave me an opportunity to tell longer stories than the newspaper would allow me to do it as well. And so that's sort of where it meshed. And then from there, I was able to kind of poke around and find some stories and, and did, did And then I did some books with the guy, Mitch Weiss, who I met at, uh, when I moved to the Associated Press. So st- started as a reporter covering the military. That's how I got there. Well, how did, how did that, that even work out? Like, how did you get in the door there? So I was a reporter in D.C. And I, uh, right after 9-11, I was in D.C. for 9-11. And, uh, and so I wanted- So you were I mean, randomly there for, for not. But how did you even get, like, how were you even there? Like, how did you, how did you become a reporter? Did you want to do that? Or was it- Oh, no, 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 no. No, I was a, I was a Naval ROTC student at uh, Old Dominion. Okay. And uh, about what the semester before I was supposed to go to service warfare officer school, I just bailed out. I, I quit and I, uh, I bounced around Virginia beach for a long time. Love and beach. then, uh, yeah. And then I eventually made it to uh, DC where I met my my future wife and she was moving to Boston. She moved to Boston um, to go to culinary school and I followed her and fell in with this company that managed uh databases for PR professionals. So I had every, every editor in the country in a database that I had access to. Wow. Uh, and I just started <laughs> pitching stories because I, it allowed me to dabble, right. It allowed me to, to be just trying to chase my curiosity. If I could find a way in and write a story about it, I could, I could go and try that out. So I used it sort of a way to try, you know, to try out other lives. Uh, and I ended up just finding, I think where I, I belonged, which is trying to tell these stories. And, and from there, 
I knew I needed a staff job, which got me to DC, which, which then eventually got me to Fayetteville. Jeez. So where were you on 9-11 then? Physically, I was a block and a half from the Pentagon. So we Jeez. heard the, the 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 plane hit the Pentagon. We could see this, uh, you know, the debris in the air um, and the smoke. And then, uh, yeah, it was. We, I mean, that was a weird day. Uh, and from there, I, I was sort of obsessed at that point with Afghanistan and and the war. And it was it was the biggest story. And you know, that's where you start to contemplate: Do you join and go and fight? Um, and I settled on that. I thought really what I needed to do was cover it. And so I tried to, you know, covering it for the Fayetteville Observer was a little different than say the Washington Post because yeah. I didn't need to do the big muscle movements. So I really tried to cover it from the, I became very interested in covering the story from the lowest point of view I could get to. The guy that's asked to go in the door is the yeah. guy I'm more interested in talking to than the guy that's asking him to go, right? So I'm less inclined with the generals and the planners. I want to get down to sergeants and below, the strategic mm -hmm. specialists, that kind of thing. Right. So I really dug in on that and, and, and found a way um, to get into special operations. And I covered them live uh, with some ODAs in Afghanistan. And, and since then, I've, I just got back from Niger where I just covered a, the, the mission there. So, um, oh, geez, I didn't realize you were still doing that sort of thing if it wasn't for a, for a book. Yeah, no. Yeah, oh, yeah. wow. I guess I didn't, didn't get that. So, so you're in Fayetteville. How long after 9-11 do you go to, uh, to Fayetteville? 2003. I get to Fayetteville in uh, January 2003, and by March I'm in uh, I'm in Kuwait and then Iraq. Um, okay. So yeah, fell in right there. Uh, I followed the 82nd for that um, for about two months in the initial invasion, and then I from there I was going for a long time. I was going two to three times a year, and then it was once a year I'd go find some reason to go, and I covered it for them pretty much up till the surge. Okay. And after I went back a year after the surge and then I, uh, and then I left and went to AP for two years before I just started writing books. And what did you do at the AP? I was a correspondent down here in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, covering some military, covering the coast. And then, uh, I did go to Afghanistan for the AP, which wasn't a great, great trip. They didn't really like the way I like to cover things. Uh, I can see it. <laughs> more, is it more corporate? It, I mean, the AP is, is an impressive organization, um, but there's a way. To, there's an AP way, and uh, you, you know you have to fit in the that that culture. It's it's no different than any big organization. Um, right. And I don't know if I was the perfect fit culturally. Right. So it, it, in Fayetteville, you could ha you had a little more leeway to kind of choose your own stories, kind of do things, let them know what you're going to be doing, kind of. Uh, yeah. So a little more freedom. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, family-owned paper. You could go right to the money and say, "This okay. is what I think the story is. This is what I'll get for you." And then they're like, yeah, "Okay, good, good next thing." Yeah, yeah. Interesting. AP okay. is you know different union shops. So you, there's a lot of rules and how you can do things. Got it. Got it. So that first book, then, how did it? Uh, um, how did that come about? How did you meet Rusty? And how did that? Uh, how did that go? I, I was sniffing around the story and ran into him. I was told he's the guy you got to talk to. And then when I sat down to talk to him, he said he had already started thinking about a book. And so. I just didn't, I couldn't, I wasn't going to beat, I wasn't going to beat him to it. And I, and the book I would write, he wasn't going to help me. Uh. It wasn't, you know, if he wants to write the book and that makes perfect sense. So why try to write a book that I was missing a major piece when I can, we can team up. Okay. Um, and I learned a lot from writing that book and, and Rusty, you know, Rusty wrote a lot of it himself and, and he, he's, he's turned into a really good writer as well. Um, and so I was, I, that story was impressive only because it's, they attacked that hill 
in broad daylight with Afghan troops and they get, they get the Afghans lined up and they go. Uh, and it speaks to the whole Green Beret partner force thing, which I thought was, was worth telling. And it's a pretty hellacious battle. Um, and Jude Voss, who is uh, in the book, uh, for those who read it, will remember, you know, he saves uh, Stuby, uh, who gets in, you know, injured in this, this uh, Humvee that's cooking off. And he goes into that, that truck and pulls him out. And so there's, it's just one of those classic battle stories that a lot of heroism and a lot of people, you know, go uh, answering the call and going beyond. Right. Jeez. And so you put that one to bed. Are you already, are you like, wow, Hey, I like this. I found my, I found my niche going forward. I'm going to write books, these kind of, of stories, this nonfiction um, side of the house from the, from the person on the grounds perspective. And um, mm-hmm. do you know, Hey, this is my path going forward. I'm going to do another one. Or are you like, Hey, did one. And uh, you know, maybe if something comes up, I'm going to do another one. But what, what happens after that first book? I end up selling the Korean war book next. Um, because I had already started working on it. So the, uh, I, I sold that book and that one ended up coming out before Rusty's book, which is, okay. they, I wrote them kind of opposite, but they kind of flipped back. Uh, but at that point I, I was just enjoying the the chance to tell these long form stories. So I, I was all at that point looking for the next book usually. Uh, okay. And I was, and my antenna was up at that point. Interesting. Well, now do you have a do you have like a, a list of things that you want to explore going forward? So now that you're, you're done with, uh, with, with damn lucky right now. And it's, uh, coming out and coming out in April, are you already working on the next one? And then, do you know, okay, after this one, there's like five or six other things I'd like to explore next or how, how does that work for you? I mean, I, I sent a list into the publisher. I, I owe them another book, the, the St. Martin's, um, we've settled on what that should be. I'll be honest though. I, I treat all I treat all the books like old girlfriends, right? <laughs> really like meeting them, really love the time I spend with them, but they all end in a, a breakup and then I move to the next one. So, so how I, how you judge the next story is how excited are you to live with it for a year? Yeah. I don't, I don't, how long does it take you to do a thriller? Well, it has to be a year now. Uh, because that's what I'm on. That's what I'm on. But it really takes about a year and three months because there's a little overlap between one starting mm-hmm. and finishing the edits on one. Um, but I need to. I'm working on getting that down and trying to get that to a six month type of a, uh, really just yeah. going all in six months, being very dedicated with my, with my time, six, seven, eight months, just so I have a little bit of breathing time to spend with the family, explore other projects instead of juggling. So I'm still figuring out that, uh, that process, but there's been so much that's happened over the last year with being involved with the show and the scripts and then the editing and post-production and all these things. And I have nothing to, I have nothing to look back on and say, oh, this is how long this takes. And this is how long this takes. And this is how I can fit it all. It's all new. So, uh, so I'm still kind of juggling and figuring that stuff out. But, um, right now it's about a year to year and three months for each book, but I need to work on getting that down to, uh, to six to eight months. Yeah. I mean, I'm usually a year once I, I lock it in, I can write them faster. Um, but I, you know, one, I think it's about a year I'm with you there. I I don't know how much I, I could cut that down um, because yeah. I, and I actually, it's funny fiction. I'm a lot better at, like I just sold a novel that's going to come out in July, but, oh, nice. um, but I fiction, I can write faster, especially like uh, any kind of screenplay. I can write a lot faster. Uh, the nonfiction is hard because I got to make sure it's all right. And I and you're relying on someone else's schedule for interviews you know. and, and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then circling back yeah. around to check things and, and all of yeah. that. You just can't make it up if you, if, <laughs> if you need to. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Got it. So, so with St. Martin's then, is it a, uh, is it collaborative? Like, do they have something that they'd like you to explore and you say, 
eh, not so much, or yeah, that sounds great. Or how does that, uh, how does that, or do you just pitch only to them and say, Hey, I'd like to do these two things. What do you think? Or, Hey, this is what I'm doing next. I sent them a list of five ideas huh? and they picked the one they liked the best. They picked two, but one of them, I, I, I knew I couldn't promise them that it would be turn out to be a good book. It was a kind of a reportage based book. Um, and I, I, I I've done, I did Gentleman Bastards where I went and embedded for 10 weeks with an ODA, hoping to get a good book out of it. And it just didn't come together. And uh, so those are hard and they're stressful when you go over there knowing you've got 10 weeks to get a book out of this. And when it doesn't come, then you got to start inventing ways to make this a, a compelling story. And it, that's just too, too stressful. So I, we settled on one idea, but I'm starting to have second thoughts. I got a couple other ideas that I think I could be more excited about. So it'll be a, it'll be a discussion. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the going back to sort of what we were talking about before is, is you know, you're known for your your style, right? You tell a certain story, um, you know, you've got your, your you know, your your way. And I think I've, I've finally settled on what I think mine is. I, I, for a long time, I was fighting the idea of trying to write with a brand, I guess is the only way to put it. Uh-huh. But I think I'm just going to give up and stick with it. <laughs> Yeah, because people are responding to it. People want more of yeah. your your work, um, yeah. and and then they want it interesting today because it's not 1985 where you just put it out there and move on to the next thing. You know, people mm-hmm. want to connect with you, ask you other questions, do things like this, um, yeah. which uh, which also helps. You know, obviously helps raise awareness for for what you've done that allows you to continue to do that going forward. So it's uh, mm-hmm. you know it's just an interesting time to be to be doing these sorts of things as an author uh, who used to rely on a publisher to do many of the things that were that we're doing right now. So I, yeah. I find that part fascinating, the business side, fascinating. Um, but uh, so eventually you get linked up with Mark Owen. So I do, yep. how does that work? I mean, I've heard from from him, uh, he, he interviewed a couple people and that sort of a thing. And it was no question that you were the guy. Um, how did they come to you with that? And what did you think? So my agent called me, I think it was like a December and they said, he said, look, I need everything you've ever written about the military. There's a book that a friend of mine's editing. They're looking for people to co-write it. And I said, okay, cool. So I sent them all this stuff, including the, the unfinished manuscript for that, that embedded, that long embed book. And then I would say, I think it was January uh, after the holidays, I got a call and the agent said, look, the editor's going to send you a non-disclosure agreement sign it, send it back. He'll call you and tell you what's going on. Okay. So I sign it. I look at the non-disclosure agreement. I think it was like a half a million dollars penalty if I said anything. Huh. And now I had to know, like, come on. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Did you have a lawyer look at that? Or you just sign it and send no, it back? No, I just signed it and sent it back. I didn't care. <laughs> so Ben Severe, who edited uh, No East Day, gets on the phone with me and he said, look, I got a guy that was on the team that got Bin Laden. He's going to write a book. We're looking for a co-writer. Can you be in DC on Monday? I think this is like a Friday. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, how do you say no to that, right? So I go home, tell my wife I can't tell her where I'm going, but I've got to go. And I'll be gone on Sunday and I'll be gone on Monday and I'll be back on Monday night. And so I drive up to DC on Sunday night and uh, I had a blazer and a tie. Like I was going all out for this. <laughs> so I meet him at a, uh, I meet him at a hotel room and, or a hotel lobby. He walks in with his agent who's dressed in jeans and a shirt. And he's in, I, I want to say... Now, I, my memory might be betraying me because I spent so much time with them, but I'm pretty sure he was in his jeans or shorts and a backwards Billabong hat. <laughs> that sounds about a right. T-shirt. 
Uh-huh. And we sit in the cafe and we go back and forth. It's a, and it's an interview, but what happened quickly was um, the connection was like, I knew Virginia beach. I was from Virginia beach. I spent a lot of time running away from guys like him at hot tuna and other places. <laughs> um, we, we had been to a lot of the same places in Afghanistan mm. and he asked me a question about other books, other seal books and about like what I thought. And I said to him, and this was like the 50, 50 question where I knew I was a little bit of trouble. Uh-huh. Two things happened. This, this question was one. He, he said, I said, I don't think we need another book about how cold it is on the beach in Coronado. That's and been he done. Was like, I agree with you there. <laughs> and then he brought, he brought six, he brought six, um, chocolate he brought six chocolate uh cupcakes and uh, i don't eat chocolate um and i ended up eating half a cupcake uh, because <laughs> i wasn't gonna let him i wasn't gonna be rude you brought six uh, and then cupcakes what was that about i don't know why he had the cupcakes but i ate him. half a one text of them. him as soon as this is over yeah find out why he oh. brought cupcakes I know. um but uh, to make a long story short i drove home that night and then the next day i uh i uh ended up um getting a call that they, they offered me the, the gig and it was a no brainer at that point. Yeah. And you guys go back and forth for a while. And do you know, as you're going through this, are you like, huh, this is going to be a little different maybe than anything I've done before, as far as response from the public response from the military, or are you just like, okay, here we go. Cool. Got this, uh, got this gig. Interesting story. Let's do this. Uh, I, or does it, does it ever enter the calculus? Like it never enters. Really? It was a, it was a sprint. Yeah. I mean, I was doing two chapters a week. And turning them in yeah. um, like a champ. Uh, I had no time to think about anything. And my first drafts, I don't know how your first drafts are, man, but mine are horrific. They're not even good. They're not even bad. They're like less than bad. Well, you get it done. You got to get it done. Yeah. And so I was vomiting words on, on the page at two chapters a week. And I remember uh, the first time Ben read the first draft and, uh, and, and Mark's agent read the first draft. And they were like, oh, shit. Really? We may have given, we, we got the wrong guy. Um, and I had to kind of calm them into like, yeah, I'll, yeah, it'll get there. Um, but we got there. Um, we worked quickly yeah. and we got there. It never dawned on me at all that the book would sell well or do anything um, really? until, until we got, until we had to start talking to the Pentagon. And do you guys, do you, I, I'm sure you recall when, uh, when the, when the Pentagon and SOCOM and, and JSOC was, they all said, you know, they've obtained copies of the book because I sent them copies of the book. I knew guys at all those places and I, ca- I called them up and sent them the copies. But uh, that's when I thought we may have something. And oh, ahead then, of time you did that. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, right, right. Well, what happened was um, a correspondent at 60 Minutes found out that Scott Pelley was going to do a story yeah. on this. And, and, uh, and they made a call down to their, their contacts at SOCOM complaining about it. Wait, how and did that work? Isn't 60, I mean, Scott Pelley was with 60 Minutes. Yeah, it was. there's, there's a lot of competition at 60 minutes ah, understood. Yes. yeah okay so uh that's what sent the, the the flag like the red flags up and that's when i had to put like start putting out little fires and I, I um wow but i didn't have any idea it would sell well at all until uh until i was in a meeting i was i was still a reporter i went back to work at the the, the wilmington north carolina newspaper and i was in a i was covering like a local government meeting and the editor called and told us that it made the best seller list and i thought Really? Yeah. Well, how about before <laughs> I never that? Thought about that. How about when the news broke and uh, you know uh, Mark is 
is now embroiled in this controversy and yeah. it's all over the news and it broke early and all that sort of a thing. Um, how did you, were you just already back at work doing other things and kind of like, Oh, okay. Or were you like, wow, this is different. No, I was, I was part of, you know, I was part of a lot of those calls. I felt, I mean, we talked a lot on the phone about it. I felt horrible for him. Um, because I, you know, I was there from the creation of this thing and I know where his heart was and what he was trying to do and and to see it get, you know, basically torn apart and, 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 you know, being all of a sudden the angles that people were, you know, were were coming up with on why he was doing it when they never talked to him. I mean, I I took a little, I took a little offense to that. Um, I also thought the hypocrisy of the government was a little much. I mean, there really wasn't anything in there. And, and the guys that I had sent the book to who had read it, I mean, they were nitpicky a little bit. But, you know, if you don't think that the, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda knows that guys were operating out of Jalalabad, then, you know, who is the guy on the, you know, the, like, you have your own compound and you guys operate and don't wear the same uniform. Like, give me a break. Like, it doesn't take a rocket science. If they're figuring it out and know he's dead, they're the dumbest terrorists in the world. <laughs> Like there's nothing we gave up in that book. And so I was a little pissed off about that. Yeah. And then I, but mostly I really felt for him because yeah. I, I just feel like, you know, I think he was unfairly maligned for something. I think he tried to do with the purest intentions. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I thought when you first told me about it, uh, we talked about this on the, the series of podcasts that we, we did about it uh, that came out this uh this past January. I remember when he mentioned it to me for the first time, kind of to get my, my thoughts on it. Um, I thought it was going to be like those other books, like the Coles and Coronado books that were out there. And mm-hmm. then at the time there were two, two big ones, Lone Survivor and American Sniper were kind of the two, um, kind of at the top. And then of course, a bunch of, bunch of others out there as well. And I thought it was just going to be, you know, one of those at the top, like, okay, you know, there's plenty of these books and they come out and they help with, uh, recruiting, inspiring the next generation and all that stuff. All of us read these books before we came in, uh, to the military. Um, and then he told me, I remember from the get go, he was going to give all that money away. Yeah. Months like at the beginning when you guys first started. And uh, Mm -hmm. so there's no reason for him to like think forward and be like, oh, if this goes bad, I need to tell a couple people like that I'm going to give this money away. You know, no, that was like, it was just a normal conversation. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, usually people give a percentage of the proceeds. He's going to give it all away. And I I know, obviously know this guy very well. And, uh, and he's going to do that. Um, You know, and and I didn't think anything else about it. And then when it broke, and all the news started coming in. And then this just, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a tipping point. I mean, you know, up to that point, we had you know, all these SEAL books. We had Active Valor, the movie where we have the Navy SEALs, active duty, given orders to go to Hollywood. And they're moving around carrier battle groups and putting SDVs yeah. and submarines and showing these capabilities and and uh, and all that sort of thing. It was, and it came out pretty good. It was a, I know all the guys that were, were in that thing. Um, but there was a conversation that was starting. And it was like, hey, are we overexposed here, uh, is as far as our, our operations and, and our quote unquote brand, um, that sort of a, that sort of a thing. So the conversation was started, um, not because of guys, but because, Hey, the military ordered these people to do active valor. They ordered these people to go and do these video games, us SOCOM video games from the early two thousands onward. Um, and, uh, they've done all this sort of a thing to, to, for whatever reason, but now we have this conversation about maybe it's a little much. And then the book hits. And so it was just as this wave was starting to crest, that was the tipping point. Um, and then we saw what, what we saw, but for, for you, 
I mean, to see all that, to spend so much time with, uh, with Mark and getting this story and getting it, getting it out there. And then to see what transpired, not just for a week or two weeks. I mean, maybe in the, in the news that was, you know, a month or so, whatever it was, but to have those lasting effects in the community and to have him still dealing with that stuff today. Um, what was that like? It's, it's terrible. Cause uh, you know, you're part of creating this thing that everybody was very proud of. And then for it to be this albatross that, that, you know, kind of plagues him for a while and takes, and I, I think, I don't, I think that the emotional toll is what I go back yeah. to. I mean, the financially, I mean, that's, that's significant as well, but, but, but the, the idea that the, you know, he, he had sacrificed, he had sacrificed that. And we don't have to get into the details, but you know him as well as I, I mean, he had sacrificed a considerable amount of himself and his life and his family and things like that to get to where he was and to do the things he did and to have it all sort of fall down like that. I just, I felt for him. And, and I think, and I'm not part of the, this community, right? I'm a, I'm a adjacent to the community. I, I understand. I've, I, I'm more of an anthropologist, right? It's like, so I've lived in the village with, with your tribe, but I've never been part of it. But I think I understand that bond at least. And I think that when that bond's taken away and maybe taken away unfairly, mm-hmm. um, I think that, 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 and so I, I, I was more empathetic than anything. It really wasn't much I could do to help. I mean, you know, if he needed it, he knew he could call me, but I, I just, I couldn't proactively help him that I, and, and the times I could help him, I did, but yeah, I really felt emp- empathy for him and, and, you know, I felt for him. Yeah. No, I, I, I still do. And then you guys get back together and you do this one, yep. bam, right there. Yep. And this one mm-hmm. goes through an approval process and, uh, and, and, you know, gets out there. So that's, uh, you know, no, that's no hero right here. Uh, the evolution of a, of a Navy SEAL. And uh, you guys do a great job on this one. Love the, love the covers on, uh, on both of these. Um, but I mean, you get, you do an amazing job in, in all that you do. Um, but are there any of all the things that you've done, all the books, like I love just because of, you know, CIA stuff and, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. this central South America and guerrilla warfare and just this time in, in history. Um, hunting Che was, is, 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 I love this book. Um, but, uh, so thank you so much for writing, writing this one. Um, what was writing this, this like, and did you learn anything, anything? I mean, you must've learned a few new things. What are a couple of things that stand out that, uh, that you learned while writing this? I love that book because we went to Bolivia for a week and walked walk the whole thing, which was great. Um, I just liked, I liked, one, I love working with Mitch Weiss, so that was a pleasure. It's always fun to work with him. But two, the thing that struck me most and what really started that book was, um, I, there was a, there was a, how is it that he, Che Guevara is celebrated in Bolivia when he came there to overthrow the government? Interesting. And so that's where we started. Like, why is the hero of the Che Guevara story not the guys who stopped the overthrow of a government? but it's Che Guevara. And then, so we started peeling it back and we thought that, you know, we, we write beach history, you know, that's essentially what I beach write. Beach history. I love it. That's a, I've never heard that term before. Because I'm not a historian. I, you know, we take history and we write it like reporters. Mm-hmm. And so the goal there was to try to write it like we were covering it. Mm-hmm. And so we found the people who could move the story, but when, instead of telling the story, so for when we first outlined the book, Che Guevara was a, an integral character in it. Mm. But what we found was Che 
Che, che walked the walk. Like you can't, you can't take that away from him. But with his insurgency in Bolivia wasn't effective because he went to the wrong spot and they, mm. in, they instantly get lost and they really never have any traction. And then the Bolivians track them down and get them. So making him a character kind of takes away the threat, right? Because mm. you'll see him bumble it. You'll see him get lost and you'll see him what they do, right? And how they're not effective at all. So that's why when we wrote it, we wrote it very much like it was covered in reality during real time where Che was this specter. He was this shadow that was hanging over Bolivia and the world in that he was going to ferment these revolutions forever all over the place. Right. And so that's why we wrote it from that point of view. And then to be able to write it with Pappy Shelton and, and to go down there and talk to, to the folks involved and Felix Rodriguez, who um, I'm fascinated by the, the Cuban exiles and I mean, the yeah. way that they operate. Um, I don't know. That's a, it was a fun book. And it, it got me to dabble in a part of the, the world that is in the neighborhood I'm, I'm often in. I'm, I'm often in either Africa or, or the Middle East or Central Asia. So right, it was right. fun to go down there. And yeah. Che has an Africa t- touch point, obviously, yep. uh, in his in his history. Um, I love the the Rolex watch stuff, of course, with uh, yeah. Felix and the. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff in there that we can learn from. Um, you know, once again, that goes back to to what Lucky was talking about: is that uh, you know what have we learned from from all these wars and experiences? And you know, I I keep going back to obviously Iraq and Afghanistan because that's my those are my my conflicts, but. I hope that going forward, we take the lessons learned from those conflicts and apply them as wisdom. And I am not hopeful that we'll do that because I can look back on history and see what we've taken from previous wars uh, mm-hmm. and conflicts and applied or have not applied. And a lot of that, I think, is because we, uh, one, yes, we're, we're, we're divided, but um, uh, two is that we think in four-year election cycles or eight-year election cycles. And oftentimes, uh, through politicians and their staffs who haven't spent time downrange, I think right now is the, um, I think we have the least amount of veterans in Congress, I believe. I think 19, early 70s, I think, was when we had the most. And it was those World War II veterans, obviously, um, that had come of age and then entered, entered politics. So I think it was early 70s is what, uh, um, my data might be a little bit off, but I think that's what, that's right. Um, and gosh, you know, it doesn't seem like we... We honor those people who sacrificed everything for us by taking those lessons and applying them going forward for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that part's just, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, Lucky talked about that a little bit mm-hmm. there at the end and seeing he has kind of a, a similar mindset about the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I think he's disappointed. I don't, I don't think how you could not be. Um, and I think with, with the amount of sacrifice, and I think that sacrifice goes beyond World War II, but the amount of sacrifice that everybody has made um, you'd think that these lessons would be learned and, and would be, you know, it's interesting though. I just come back from Niger and Niger, um, if you recall the Tongo Tongo ambush in 2017, yeah. where four, uh, four American soldiers were killed. And I think six Nigerian soldiers mm-hmm. were killed. Um, it's interesting to see how that missions evolves uh-huh. and how the lessons that they learned from that ambush are now being you know, uh, used to, to, to f- refine the mission, I would say. Okay. Um, and I, I left there, I went there very skeptical. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've gotten tired of the, if we don't go there and get them and kill them, then they're going to come here. Right. Yeah. I've gotten tired of that logic and that, that sort of rationale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I went skeptical that this partner force could do the work that that's necessary. And, and I left, um, I mean, I think that at that partner force is very good. The Nigerians are very good. 
And I think uh, I think the Niger mission it gives us a preview of how we could operate in the future. And so I'm ho- going back to the idea of like lessons learned and not using them. I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe the sacrifices of Tago Tago are actually being um, listened to and the lessons are being applied in a smart way. And we'll see. I mean, there's smarter men than not, than me um, to hopefully working on it. I think that's something we always think too. Hey, smarter people than me are working on this. And that's not the case. Like, <laughs> well, I would, I would tell my guys in the teams, I'd say, Hey, you know, cause what you hear oftentimes is, um, you know, uh, uh, being the smartest person in the room, you know, like don't, mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, don't assume you're the, don't, don't assume that you're not the smartest person in the room, which is kind of the opposite of conventional wisdom. Right. Cause you go into some of these rooms with people and you just think, okay, hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hey, you know, don't assume that you're not the smartest person in there. Like make your voice heard, uh, if there is a concern. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think often the default to that, like, Hey, smarter people than me are working on this thing. <laughs> not always. <laughs> no. Uh, and yeah. Well, trust me. I've run into those rooms. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, so is the, was the Niger trip, is that for a book or is that for an, an article? It's a magazine story. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'll be out. I don't know when I, I'm actually waiting on edits, so we'll see. Nice. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's been fun to stay. I like, I, I view myself as a reporter. I don't really look at myself as a, a book writer. Okay. And so I'm just a reporter that sometimes gets a chance to write books. And so I go into all the projects with that kind of reporter mentality of going after the story, finding the sources, talking to the people, yeah. you know, trying to tease out that story as much as you can to the people who did it. Got or it. if I can get on the ground and, and, and watch it that way. Which, uh, which of your stories have turned into books that started out as, Hey, I'm going to do a, an article on this. I broke the story about the, um, shock Valley guys getting the 10 silver stars. Oh. Uh, that eventually, I think there's two medals of honor and there's a air force cross. I think a single service cross in there now, but when it first came out, um, it was the ODA that, um, got the mission to go into shock Valley in Afghanistan. And they're the ones who, <laughs> wanted to do an air assault and fast rope from the top to the top. The village is sat on top of a mountain and they wanted to fast rope the village and then work that way. But the planners refused to let Afghan commandos, because this was still in their infancy, fast rope out of American helicopters. So they put them in the valley and they had to climb up to the village and they got ambushed. And uh, it turned into a, I think a six, six hour, eight hour firefight. On the and they were on this ledge and Mitch Weiss and I I got Mitch involved in this one too but uh, I I wrote the story for AP uh-huh. uh, USASOC uh, US Army Special Operations Command in Fort Bragg brought me in interviewed the guys for three hours wrote the story and then I wanted to do it in a book it just felt like there was something more and so we sat down with the whole team in Hope Mills which is outside of, of Fort Bragg and they're only the only way they do it, let us do the book is if we told the truth. And the truth was that the mission was kind of a boondoggle and they hated it and they fought it all the way wow. before they had to get ordered to do it. And that, that book was a completely came from reporting. I got in the beginning and that as I, I reported more, I realized that I had got it wrong. Wow. No, incredible. Gee. So all these books that you've done, um, does damn lucky stand out because of that relationship and how you had to write it over this, over Skype, over tele telephone, this relationship that you guys, uh, developed, um, has that been different than, than some of your other books just because he is a hundred years old and was part of this, this incredible piece of history that is so long ago. Um, and yet so important to all of us. I think so. I mean, I think damn lucky will be one of those books that's up there with no easy day and that 
it's it was a unique situation it was a very unique um experience and and to me i think damn lucky helped me it helped me get through covid i think a lot of people struggled through covid meant there's some you know mentally um but that was the north star i knew every day i could get on the phone with lucky and and knowing that lucky been through worse stuff than <laughs> covid right oh yeah. no i i can't i can't go to the movies right like lucky you know barely survived 25 missions so it brought a lot into perspective and it was, yeah. and it allowed me to kind of have a touch point. I knew every day I could get to it and we could focus on it. And for that, those, those times that we talked, you know, I could stay in the moment. Now for me, it was a moment of, of, you know, there, for me, it was exciting because I was learning the story, right? Yeah. For him, it was pure horror. So yeah. in, in some ways like, you know, I commend him for even taking my call after a while because I made him relive a horror at a time when a lot of people, you know, it was a kind of a scary time. So, yeah. Well, you guys did such an incredible job. I can't wait for everybody to to read this. Damn lucky, um, man, incredible. Um, and I did want to ask you about your writing area because last time we met up in person, it was a few years ago. And uh, was you, did, were you writing over the garage? Is it? Are you? Do you have a? a I was. Okay. Yeah. Are you at a different spot now, or do you have a? Now, yeah, now. So we uh, we got the house renovated, and we the kids we had to cut a drug deal so they have the room over the garage and i moved down here to the downstairs so this is sort of the area i have downstairs i share it with my wife so i've got like half the room got it so i was thinking about you because we we moved recently too and uh i have a spot over the over the garage for for writing it's now filled with i mean it's it's filled with books and we're still moving essentially but i was thinking of you i'm like ah this is how he does it up here uh and it does help to be a little bit uh, cause mm-hmm. the last house, it was right there. There was the door to the office and then there was the the kitchen living room area. It was right there. Easy access. And as soon as that door closed, there's like a magnet for kids to knock, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't know what that is. That's about, but, uh, so now being a little bit, making it just a tiny bit harder to get to is certainly helpful. But I was thinking about you when we uh, first saw the house. I'm opposite now. I I'm right here. I can see the front door. Oh no. The kitchen's right here. Uh-oh. And so this is much more like working in a newsroom. God, oh, you're used to that. Which is fine with me. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I can do that. Interesting. You know, I read that, uh, or I heard Malcolm Gladwell on his podcast once talking about how he got to his first newsroom when it was still like typewriters and noise and just all that craziness. Mm -hmm. It wasn't yet all computers, I guess, maybe. And it wasn't just a little quieter. But uh, so that, that excitement and that noise actually helps him. So he goes and writes in coffee shops in New York because there's that background noise and that buzz, which he got used to writing in. Um, and for me, I like it quiet. Like it doesn't need to be, you know, it doesn't have to, I don't have to have a view. It can just be looking at a wall. It's fine. Um, but just that quiet and that, that un, and not being interrupted. Like those two things are the, uh, the key elements. I have, I, I listen to music exclusively headphones. Cause when I was in the newsroom, um, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't any more typewriters, but it was phone calls all around you, people talking and Got doing it. interviews. Okay. And so I would put earphones in, but I, I mean, being embedded, I've written, I've written stuff on target. Like I've sat, Jeez. you know, in like bombed out places and written. So to me, it's not, it's not a precious thing. It really, the precious part for me is when I put the earphones in, I can focus straight in. Yeah. All right. I got a question for you if, if, before we get off. Yeah. Yeah. When you write your novels, so I wrote, I wrote this novel and, and I outlined it completely yep. beginning to end. And then I, each chap, each paragraph of the outline became a chapter. Yep. And so for me as a reporter, like I, like I, I looked at it as I did all my reporting and then I could just write the story that way. Yep. Are you like that? Or do you just kind of get a thread and roll with it? No, very similar. Uh, I come okay. up with that, uh, that, that theme and essentially that, uh, you know, the back cover 
uh, one page executive summary, something like, Hey, do I want to spend the next year, year and three months of my life on this based off these few paragraphs that I've, I've written here and the yeah. theme that's going to drive it. And, uh, if that answer is yes, then I turn that into the outline. And, uh, thus far it's been, uh, prologue three parts epilogue this, although this last, this next book that comes out here in, in May in the blood has four parts. Cause it just naturally turned into four parts, um, with right. a book ended by a prologue and an epilogue. But, uh, but I do it very similar turn it into the outline. And then if I get to a place though, where I'm stuck on something, I just go around it and leave a couple X's there knowing mm -hmm. that, Hey, I have a year and three months ish to figure this out. So I know I'm confident that in that time frame I'm going to figure it out. Uh, cause I've certainly worked under, uh, the different time constraints downrange under fire. Yeah. So I can come back, I can sleep on this. I can work through this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I get it as outlined as I possibly can. Um, and then go back and essentially start filling that in. But I don't know the characters yet. I know like, Hey, so-and-so secret service agent, so-and-so president, I know my recurring characters. Um, but the ones that are new, I don't know their personalities yet until they start interacting mm. on the page and still until I start writing that dialogue. And in right. the course of doing that, then I get to understand the character and they, they develop more fully. Um, and, and oftentimes then drive the story and lead to some other things that I'm going to research that are interesting and put in there. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's how I do it. But I typically know the ending, uh, cause I, I feel that's important to know where I'm going before I start. Mm -hmm. And even if there's a couple parts in there that don't quite make sense yet, like, Hey, that's okay. I'm going to, figure that out as I, as I go. And then I also have the title at the beginning, cause I don't want to waste any bandwidth, uh, worried about, oh, man, I got to figure out a good title as I'm writing away in the story. I want all my effort focused on the narrative, on the story, not be worried about how oh, what's this title going to be. I sure hope I can figure something cool out, or maybe my editor can fight, figure it out. No, I have the title. I know that ending it's, uh, it's outlined as much as I'm comfortable with. And then I'm, then I'm in. I'll leave you with this then this, uh, title. I got two ways on title. Either it's, I know it instantly before I start. Damn lucky. Lucky's like, I want the book to be called damn lucky. I said, fine. Perfect. Perfect. Um, or I have no idea. Mm. And it just becomes this mess. So the no easy day title comes from this. We're in a meeting. It's like the first, second time I've met him in person where it's a, it's, it's been severe. It's his, it's Mark's agent and Mark and I are, we're sitting around a table in a hotel in DC and we're, it was like our first story meeting or something. And this is when I was asking questions like, what's the, do you have a book outline? Do you have a proposal? I mean, this thing was sold on the napkin. Like yeah. nobody had any idea what we were doing. And so, and Ben was kicking around title ideas. Like, what are we going to call this thing? And, uh, and they're going around and around the title. I mean, everybody's brainstorming. So the, the title, we're not, we're not there yet. And uh, I remember on, a, on, on my notepad, I wrote, no, I remembered, the only easy day was yesterday. And I wrote no easy day on the notepad. I just slided it over to, to Mark and Mark says, he looks at, it, he's like, Hey, here's the title. And that was it. And then from there, that title stuck the whole way. There it is. There it is. So there you Amazing. go. There's your title story for no easy day. There it is. There it is. Breaking news. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much for taking time. I know how, I know how that interrupts the day and the flow of your work and everything else you have going on. So I sincerely appreciate you you taking time. And uh, it's always so cool to to talk to you since we met a couple of years ago. I always yeah. wanted to sit down and uh, and talk to you a little little more. And that's what this podcast allows me to do is allows me to do things that I wouldn't because we wouldn't be talking today. I'd be working on my next book in the other room or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But this is uh, kind of a uh, a way to gives me an excuse to to sit down and and talk with people who I, I want to talk to and people who I respect. Um, and I sincerely appreciate appreciate you taking the time to do it. And thank you for writing this and doing such an incredible job 
with, uh, with lucky story. Um, just incredible. Well, thank you, man. And I mean, congratulations. Look, I remember I, when I first, when we first met, you know, terminal list was, uh, was a picture on your phone. Um, and, and man, it's been amazing watching you and reading your career and, and, uh, and, and the, it, the novel I wrote, uh, was a little bit, you know, inspired by, uh, by the work that you did. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, you told me w- with your story, you said, you know, you got to just do it kind of thing. Right. And I wanted to do it. And I, I just finally sat down and did it. So I, the novel, uh, I appreciate you, you know, nudging me to try to try it. So again, it's been a pleasure watching you seeing your books all over the shelves and congratulations on, on, on that. Oh man. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to read it. Uh, so be sure and send me a, a copy and I'll, I'll get a blurb out there. Cause I'm sure it's going to be amazing with your background and experience and everything that you've done and written. I can't wait to read it. So, uh, I'm right. fired up. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. Hopefully I'll see you in person again soon. Navy Federal Credit Union. The name would suggest that it is just for members of the Navy, but that's not true. It is open to all members of the military, regardless of branch, veterans and their families. So go to NavyFederal.org. Check them out. Federally insured by NCUA. They have uh, certainly financed a few of my motorcycles over the years. I've been a member since 1996. So uh, car loans, home loans, motorcycle loans, whatever it might be, be sure to check them out. And if you're just getting started and need some help investing, they can help you there too. So be sure and check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash Danger Close and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, But SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. For those paying attention, you will remember that I used a true precision barrel in a SIG P365 with a dead air silencers Odessa 9 suppressor in the devil's 
hand. And the guys at True Precision were kind enough to send me an awesome SIG P365XL that they put together. But uh, for those who need a refresher, this is, what, uh, this is what I put in. Reese waited in darkness. He'd wetted down the dead air Odessa 9 suppressor with water from the bathroom sink to further dampen the sound. The suppressor was threaded onto a True Precision barrel of his SIG P365. Contrary to what Hollywood had programmed moviegoers to think, silencers didn't actually silence a gunshot. Rather, they suppressed the noise to more palatable levels, which is why the military community called them suppressors, in contrast to Hiram Maxim's original patent language, which called them silencers. Reese planned to take one well-aimed headshot as his target entered the room. Oh yeah. So that was the, uh, the paragraph there. And if you haven't read it, well, you can find out what happens next by picking up the book or listening to it on audio read by Ray Porter. But uh, and True Precision, thank you so much. And that is true-precision.com and follow them on the social channels also. That's what they look like right there, True Precision. Uh, follow them on Instagram. And this is just awesome. So thank you guys so much. Threaded barrel on here, SIG red dot optic. I mean, look at that. That is just awesome. And it feels great. So thank you guys so much. Once again, that is true-precision.com. And uh, sincerely appreciate this. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Kevin Maurer, go to kevinmaurer.net, and that is K-E-V-I-N-M-A-U-R-E-R.net. Find out about all his work there. Be sure and pick up Damn Lucky and gift this book to uh, other people in your life, particularly those junior high, high school, college. Um, I think the earlier that people start reading books like this and this story in particular, the better it will be for the nation. So be sure and pick up Damn Lucky, pick up a few copies and uh, gift it to your friends. If you like this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. My next novel, In the Blood, is coming out on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audio, and is available for pre-order now. The website is officialjackcar.com. Follow me on the social channels at jackcarusa, jackcarusa.com for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.